Hello Sword People, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with biomechanist Katie Bowman, author of Move Your DNA and the forthcoming Grow Wild. You can find her online at nutritiousmovement.com. So without further ado, Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So whereabouts in the world are you? I am uh, in the United States on the West Coast. Um, in a state called Washington, but not to be confused with our East Coast, Washington, D.C. Um, and I'm on the Olympic Peninsula of Washington, which means I can look across to Canada from oh, wow. our home. So that's that gives you sort of a sense of where I am. Yeah, so the top left corner of the United States without I getting mean, to Alaska. Yeah, top upper left is sort of the uh, meme that people wear on their giant baseball caps when you're <laughs> up here in this area. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I go to Washington uh, in normal years, I go two or three times a year because I have a, oh. a club that I teach at regularly in Seattle. So uh, I'm tolerably familiar with the state, but I guess many of the listeners may not be. So, and you're out in the country. Yes, I live in a yes. very, I live in a forest. I mean, I live right on the edge of national forest. And in the Olympics, as you know, um, there's a million acres of mm-hmm. national forest here. So um that's why I have to drive into town to do this because I have no cell reception or Wi-Fi where I live. Oh wow! Imagine that. <laughs> that sounds extremely restful. It's it's very quiet, and I didn't realize it until I come into town. And in, in town, I'm going to use the word town loosely because it's even a pretty small town, but it feels pretty loud, just um, relatively speaking. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, I used to live in Finland, and there was a. Uh, fantasy author who used to write these books about people who kind of go into the forest to have these sort of freaky adventures and I'll figure out who that was and stick, stick a mention in the show notes I'm blanking on the name but at a at a um, convention in Finland he was he expressed surprise that Finns would like his books so much because you know he's writing these books about people who go into the forest to have adventures and as he put it the Finns come out of the forest to buy milk right exactly all the, the specialness is sort of lost, but uh, yeah, fin, Finland's a great place. Have you been? I, I, my, I have not been, but um, I follow very much the way their country preserves things like um, wild food knowledge and how mm-hmm. they position their elders within their government. And then I had a nephew who lived there um, for quite a while. And so I, I, I would like to go someday and spend some time there. Yeah, I, I, th- one thing, I think you would like it because like when I was living there and we have kids and when the kids were like six or seven, they were walking to school by themselves and they would come out of school and then they would just kind of go play in the forest on the rocks, whatever, with their friends outside and then just come in when they were hungry, which is something you just don't see much in Europe or America these days. No, but I feel like they've made a conscious effort to preserve it. They, mm. they, they yeah. as a culture, find it valuable more than perhaps um, where different cultures have found progressing away from some of their traditions to be mm. more valuable. And, and so the, 
the diligence with which they work to preserve it, I think is very interesting and a case study for maybe some other countries who would, or cultures who would like to um, preserve aspects that really there's not a ton of people saying we wish those weren't exi- didn't exist anymore, but rather right. we just moved away and in hindsight going, oh, I didn't know that had to be preserved. I thought it was sort of evergreen, um, if you yeah. will. I thought, I thought it would persist forever. Yeah, but you go chop down enough trees and eventually the forest is gone. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, now, in the historical martial arts community, I'm something of a mechanics specialist. Like, how do you frame a blow in such a way that it causes minimum, there's minimum resistance in the body and the, the forces that are generated and the forces that come back from the opponent are rooted safely into the ground and so you don't get joint injuries and things like that. Um, but... I'm a martial artist, I'm not a trained biomechanist. So what actually is a biomechanist? Oh, well, well, a biomechanist uh, is is someone who is schooled in, um, I think, ultimately bio, biological systems and mechanics, which would be which would be all the forces that are in play. It's Newtonian mechanics most of the time. And so it's just pressure and friction and uh, force pounds in your, in your considering those things. And I think what will probably come up in our conversation later is biomechanics thinks about form. Definitely. I think the thing that mm. thing that you're speaking of is form and that's, yep. that's considered kinematics. So that means what's the geometry of, um, of the shape of your body that optimizes leverage, you know, you're, you're thinking of, of, of those sides, like this would optimize your position. If you go too far, if you reach too far beyond here and you're too far forward of your front leg, your back leg is no longer grounded and you're much more prone to tipping forward. Um, and then there's another element of biomechanics, which is kinetics, which is the, the things that are not as easy to see. So it's easy to see body position it's not as easy to see forces. You can definitely calculate forces, um, but you can hold your arm out and have it be a particular form. And I can take another person or I can take the same person holding their arm out in the same way, but using different muscles to do so. So while they have technically the same form, if you look at them kinematically, kinetically, they're they're different. And then different things would arise in those situations. So that's what a biomechanist is looking at really how a mechanics affect living systems. Um, and it doesn't have to go for just humans. I mean, tree, their biomechanists can look at trees. They can look at um, ecologies. Uh, they can look at a, a particular sport. There's lots of sport biomechanists who look to optimize the form of a sport. Um, and then there's uh, biomechanists who, who look at um, maybe on a more micro level cells and tissues and like, how does that form relate to what the cells and tissues of the body are doing? So I study human biomechanics for the most part, but really if you study biomechanics, you just understand the mechanics and you can apply it to any system. You can study whales if you want to, how do they leap out of the water? And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's <laughs> what a biomechanist cool thing is. Yeah. There, there are people who get to work on that problem. Wow. So, so what, what is your, like what drew you into that? What's your real area of interest? Um, I think disease uh, or, or um, I mean, it would be loose. Like that's the loosest category. I, got, I, I sort of fell into it because um, I was um, a math student at first. I was a, a math student first and then a physics student at first at university. 
but I was also coming out of being a very sedentary person. So I was not a mover as a younger person. I mean, beyond the fact that children, I think, tend to be more movers than adults. But I was a very studious um, uh, bookworm kid. Um, and so I started moving in my, like, 20s. You know, 18, 19, 20, I became an, an emerging mover, sort of like someone might have done at three. I started right. doing it 18 or 19. And so I found a small program at our university in biomechanics, which took my um, background in math and physics, which I liked, but which was frankly boring. I mean, it just, right. it wasn't, it wasn't engaged in the world. It was like a lot of pen and paper and thinking of problems, but there was not, you know, any sort of application to those problems. Um, and then I was an emerging mover. And so I was like, oh, I, I like that I can take this field that I'm good at really seeing, um, seeing form, uh, measuring forces just, you know, by eye, um, with applying all of that ability to see on some body that was moving. Um, and so that's how I came into the field was because of this small two. I mean, I still remember finding it in the library. It was two lines long saying, this is a degree program, um, that you can do. And so I immediately transferred and then, um, just became interested over time in, First exercisers, because usually you're working with either um, athletes, uh, mm -hmm. dancers, um, physical therapy. You know, those are the uh, dancers and athletes. Physical therapy uh, tend to be where you will find biomechanists employed the most. Okay. And so I did that and for my undergraduate um, was just worked in kinesiology. You know, how do you help people? Uh, train better with exercise? How do you help athletes sure. rehab? Um, and I did that for a while, but then after I graduated, before I went to graduate school, I just really saw that there was these predictable positions or postures or way that, ways that people would move. And you could start to see like, wow, everyone who has um, a lumbar fusion tends to have these certain mechanics in, sure. in common. And everyone who has a rotator cuff surgery tends to have these uh, certain mechanics in common and people with low bone density in certain places. And I was like, Oh, of course, right. These are the predictable outcomes you would have. If this person was a bridge, an engineer would say it's going to fail here and here. And right. so I just, um, I just had an eye for it. So I went back to graduate school and to study, to study that, like, what are the, what are the movements that are associated with certain expression of disease? But then I also was really specialized in culture because we think of ourselves as, as the humans, but really we are just a group of humans and cross-culturally there were different things that would arise in different populations because of our culture is really a large dictator of how we move as a large group of people. So, um, yeah. And so it's, I would say it's where I am now, 25 years later, which is looking at, um, what are the habits that large groups of people share when it comes to movement? Um, you know, you can think about form on a sport, but you could also call it the sport of life and say, well, I know sure. that probably everyone listening sits, you know, six to eight hours a day. And I know how they sit in the position that they sit in. So a biomechanist can sort those things sort of into patterns. And then it's like, okay, well then I was, I will, I would assume that this group, knowing that what I know about the biology and the loads to the different tissues, that hips and knees and shoulders are going to um, 
be the places where you have greater uh, experience of ailments. And I'll know that bone density is going to be lower at these particular sites because of how they're loading as a, as the sport of being in this particular group. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I mean, exactly right. I mean, uh, like we are amazing sitting athletes for sure. Although you're on a standing desk right now. So am I. Say that again. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We're both standing. It's changed. It's totally changeable. Yeah. I, I have, I have this, um, this electric desk that goes to exactly the height I want. And depending on what socks I'm wearing, I'll have right. a, a slightly different height to get the mechanics just right so that my wrists don't go crazy when I'm right. typing. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. And actually, a lot of my work revolves around getting people who have never moved deliberately right. uh, to start. You know, the sword is hugely attractive. It's like a hook that gets people, hooks people off the sofa and into doing something interesting and active. And I mean, sometimes they're coming to me in their 50s or 60s, having never moved deliberately before. And we have all of this work to do just to basically get them moving cleanly enough that they are able to start actually properly practicing the art of swordsmanship. And, you know, these these historical swordsmanship comes from lots of different historical cultures, and they all have their particular ways of moving. Um, Particularly, for example, um, there's a wonderful book, about Tudor England called How to Be a Tudor that has a whole section on how you moved indicated your social position within a particular hierarchy in a particular room, right? So there's like particular ways of walking that gentlemen would do, but no lady would ever walk like that and no peasant would ever walk like that. Um, And it's so one of the things we have to do is from the clues that we can get out of these manuscripts and other sources, we have to figure out how were they moving and therefore what movement patterns are they bringing to their art? And therefore, if we're going to recreate this art properly, how do we create the specifics of that movement? Exactly. So yeah, there's, there's, there's a, there's a lot of work to be done. I would like that book. I, I find that, um, yeah, already I'm going, did he say the name of that book? Because I'll definitely want to order a okay. copy. Ruth Goodman, how to be a tutor. And actually I interviewed Ruth, um, a couple of weeks ago. She'll be on this podcast soon. Um, but yes, I can, I can certainly, um, I'll send you a link and there'll be a link in the show notes for people listening. Okay. So your overall focus does seem to be on like health span. So generally getting people generally healthier and into a more enjoyable life because they're not restricted by pain or whatever. Is that, is that a fair characterization? I think it's fair. Um, I would say though that health is a very nebulous concept. Sure. Um, I would say that I'm trying to what I'm trying to ultimately do is help them increase their movement span because, you know, versus the health span, because, because I think that, and it's inherent, there's, there's some inherent problems in the way that we have set up these terms, health and fitness and physical fitness, um, because it is quite possible. And in athletes, it's quite common to be extremely healthy by the markers that we've set up for health, but not be able to move large portions of their body, meaning, meaning that, right. And so, and so I think that more than what I'm talking about is health is I'm saying that the ability to continue to move is probably even a better, um, if you're trying to set up your, your, we're all trying to pick our choices of, of how we behave and what we want to adjust that, that a lot of times we make choices that cut down our future movement. And we don't realize that we're making them in the moment because we don't know what it's like to not move a part or even a whole 
a whole portion or a whole part, a whole person until the degeneration is at the point in which we cannot. And then we, you know, we either don't know how that relates to the choices before. So it's really more that. And I think that you will have, you can have a, that the fulfillment of your life in the sense that you can choose what to do physically, right? Whether it's pick up children or grandchildren or hike and have interactions with nature and others, that that is a very large predictor of fulfillment for us. There's an, there's an autonomy or freedom, if you will, that comes with that movement. And so that's, that's the point of view that I'm trying to help people to get away from health per se, but just, um, I have, I have a long-term goal for my health, Mm. right? Now my kids are 14 and 12. So this is like sometime in the future, but I want to be able to play TikTok bong with my grandchildren, right? Which firstly means that my kids have to still be talking to me when they're adults. So there's, there's that. Right. Um, but TikTok bong is where you take a child upside down by the ankles and you swing them side to side, tick-tock, tick-tock. Then you lift them up and go bong, bong, bong. And of course, screams of delight and you don't actually smash their head on the ground because, right. you know, whatever. But I figure if I can do that then I probably have everything else pretty much sorted. And that is a very simple way of layering so much more than being healthy at some age. You have put in, you know, like social emotional relationships into it, right? So you're, you're choosing how you interact with others to make you like them want to be around you as Mm -hmm. you're older. And then also, uh, strength and, 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 um, these particular emotions, but it's related to an experience that you would like to have. It's not related to health and fitness outcomes, which are very poorly motivating. And it's easy to not realize that you're not on track. So I encourage everyone to do the same. That's that's excellent. Oh yeah. I mean, I am just not motivated to pick up a certain amount in the deadlift. I just don't care. No, no. Um, Or do, or do things for a certain number of minutes or at at a certain number of uh, percentages, you know, those, those mechanic ways of maybe a science will break things down to understand it does not ultimately go back to be humanizing and what humans take away from their life. And I think that that's where we are right now. We've, we've sort of made a big misstep when it comes to physical fitness to put everything in non-humanistic terms. Right. Well, I guess most of my listeners would be like, I want to be fit enough to keep whacking my mates on the head with a big sword. And that's great. And like, and I think that you should embroider that, that goes on a pillow (laughs) and that goes, so you see it every day. And like, this is my health plan. And then you can break it down and then you can check every day. You can check every day. You could see, I can't do that today. Then you can sort of imagine more what right. not being able to do it five years in the future. Or, or if I do this thing now, is it likely to make it, am I more likely to be able to do this thing or less likely to be able to do this thing Correct. later on? Yeah. That's the thing. Um, yeah. And okay. Most of the time we're dealing with gravity. Um, Always, I guess, unless you're in water. <laughs> yeah. Um, but even then there's, there's, there's you know, gravity still acting on you. But in martial arts, very often, particularly in, in sword-related martial arts, I think, the forces coming at you are coming at you horizontally, which means you have to organize your skeleton differently to deal with those forces, right? And I, I'm, I'm sure you thought about this sort of thing, and there's many different examples of this sort of thing occurring, but do you have any, any thoughts on that? Oh, sure. <laughs> how, how, long <laughs> is this, how long is this interview? Well, as I, long as you want it to be. So, so yes. I mean, gravity is one of those constant forces, but it's certainly not the only force. That even if we're not talking about um, 
swords that oh, we're always talking about swords. I know, and, and like who, who listening to who listening to this is not always thinking in terms of swords. But I, I so I think of terms of, of transverse forces, right? I think that we're just used to this idea of a giant arrow pressing on our head, right? You know, if you lift your arm up, a giant arrow pressing down on your arm. But um, and I and I think that one of the reasons we don't consider any other force besides gravity is because we hardly move. That maybe uh, when your body's still most of the time, all there is is one giant arrow pushing on your head because you're not moving your limbs. Um, you're, we're not doing labor anymore. So like what comes to mind right away is, um, uh, you know, if you are out gardening and dealing with ivy or vines, the idea that you are, you know, pulling towards you many vines and clearing them out and the vine is resisting. And so now you're dealing yeah. with a non-gravitational force. Like there's, there's sure. many things that happen, um, in that way. So I, th- I think, I mean, my further thoughts on that are really, what you're probably um, getting to experience being a swords person is more complex uh, loads or forces because you're doing a more complex movement. I mean, you're simply becoming a moving person in what is now sort of a non-moving world. And the benefits to that is you develop a greater robusticity of strength. You know, it's one thing to be able to withstand just the act of gravity when you're standing, but now, you know, if you're leaning forward, that same gravitational force, the constant gravitational force does not imply one set of muscles to resist it. Every different position against gravity means different muscles are working. And so I guess that's the thing is gravity is not one effect in the body. Every time you move into a different position, that one force creates a different result in your body. And that's, right. that's why we're set up the way we are set up. Like that's why we have the shape that we have is to be able to offset uh, gravitational loads and then like carrying loads and dealing with, um, I think I was talking earlier about um, that transverse plane of motion. So like if you're standing and something's pushing on you, you're having to deal with something coming at you in the transverse plane. But we would get many more transverse. We we would learn how to stabilize our body in the transverse plane to a much greater effect if everything in our life wasn't covered with cement and we weren't always wearing rubber shoes. Right. So in, I'm in my studio right now. You can maybe yeah. hear the echo of it. So I have behind me, which you probably can't see, um, and I know everyone listening can't see for sure, um, floating stairs. So they are stairs where the step surfaces are connected by chain. So when oh, you right, notice, yeah. right? So when you step on it, and this is it important, moves. I, it moves. So so it's why uh, why you would probably instruct someone to have a, a really stable plant of their foot. It's why. You don't want your knee hanging out to the right or to the left, because if you were on something fixed, it might not be a liability. But if you're on something that gives like slate or moss or um, anything that's uh, something wet, that now is a liability. So you don't want to. um, You can mind your form, but it's also good to practice in unstable surfaces because then you don't have to mind your form so much. The form comes second once all of the movement that uh, the reason we are so, I think, caught up in form and need to instruct form 
is because we no longer have the environments that would have put us in those forms naturally. Right. But that's the thing. The way, the way that I teach people to get into the forms, primarily, if, I can, if I'm there in person and doing it, you know, and I have control over that environment, is I create an environment in which that form is the natural solution to the problem this person is experiencing. Brilliant. And, and add forces to things so that they will make the natural changes so that their particular skeleton and every skeleton is different, will be moved into the position that they want, that they need to be in to make the, to, to neutralize those forces or to develop those forces so that it's not you should have your hip tucked like this or you should have your elbow down like that. It's this is the whole thing and you will naturally have the hip there and the elbow there because you're trying to, because you're, responding to the forces that are being right. deliberately and carefully placed upon you to get that form to occur. Right. It's the, it's the, this form is the only way that the thing that you want to happen can actually can happen. happen well. And that's the same thing yeah. with the floating stairs. We, we sure. remove their connectedness and then all of a sudden your alignment is the only way you can get up and down the stairs. But you, <laughs> but, but you don't have to use your mind to figure that out, which is the difference, yeah. right? You, you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, I think your but body you is much more. That. You can't figure it out because it's much more complicated than your and the small thoughtful part of your brain could even possibly calculate so fast. Right. But your but the rest of your parts um, deeply have that ability to do it. So it's like kind of sure. gets the the thinking out of the way and lets the response be what you would were going to be after anyway. Right. Yeah, and what I do to get the thinking side of the brain sorted out is once they're moving in a particular way that is desirable and is working for them, it will have a particular feeling, mm. right? And so I get the student to name that feeling, right, in whatever language they want to name it in with whatever label they want, so that rather than trying to remember a particular way of moving they're remembering a whole body feeling which then we can apply to other things so if for example they have a tendency to you know move in some suboptimal way maybe dropping their back arm or whatever to remind them of how they should be feeling i can just say that word to them or that phrase and it's not a correction to the arm it's a okay the way you're moving right now it probably doesn't make you feel the way you want to feel i've reminded you of the feeling and then you do the things you need to do to recreate that feeling and then they just sort of magically start moving better yeah that's brilliant so it's, it's a i just find it's a good way to because you know we've every every martial artist who, who's been trained in any kind of traditional martial art has a voice of some instructor in their head saying something like bend your back leg <laughs> or straighten your right arm or something like that and that becomes a fixation and so you might end up getting the back leg bent too much or yes the back leg was fine but you haven't noticed that it's pulled everything else out of alignment because it was not bent quite right relative to the rest hmm. so these like really specific technical corrections i just i stopped doing them about 10 years ago it's just you know if, if they have a knee that tends to turn in and they need to turn it out we find a way of making that a natural thing to do and then name the feeling and then when the knee starts to come in again, I just remind them of the feeling and they do all the other corrections they need to do that we're going to get the knee going in the right place and there they go. So, I like that. Yeah, it, it's, it's like your chain stairs, right? It, yeah. It, it creates a, you know, you know what you need to, to do to get up the stairs, but you can't possibly name and label every single 
like adjustment your body has to make to make that happen. Yeah, and I think the the purpose of the stairs is uh, really sort of to your point before where part of the assessment of how well you do, you know, which includes, do you have to grab the bar? Um, can you only take one step? Can you only lead like right and then left and then right? Like, are you, are you creeping up the stairs with one dominant leg? Is not to really measure those as much as uh, how nervous or stable do you feel? And people will say, I'm so afraid. And then it's like, okay, well, we don't want to tether really going up and down the stairs with fear, like, no. you know, and so, well, what would it take to be more confident and, you know, maybe practice and, and as they do it become more confident then um, sometimes, sometimes I wonder if the feeling can't actually lead the mechanics, not even have to be sure. associated with it in the real time, but just say, what would it take for you to feel good on the stairs? And then maybe they can naturally mm. sort out, well, if I relax my shoulders a little bit, I'll feel better. So, so the feeling might even be associated with a particular form before the form has happened sure and and like sometimes getting them to like wear different clothes because i mean i had this experience where i had one student who was quite clumsy in class just generally fairly clumsy and i bumped into him at a role-playing event and he was wearing some kind of gown thing like a dress okay and i didn't recognize him because how people move is a large part of how I identify them, particularly my students, because I spend all my time looking at how they sure, move. Sure, sure, same. And he came up to me and said, oh, hi, guy. And I was like, oh, my God, it's you. You move, like, so differently. And he wasn't even aware of it. And then in class, I asked him what he'd been wearing. And I said, okay, now just imagine you're wearing that instead of your training clothes. And boom, suddenly started moving better. Because those clothes for him were associated with a certain kind of graceful movement. Mm -hmm. And just putting him in that headspace gave him access to that movement pattern. Well, that's so funny because I I made a few questions. You know, when you're being interviewed, you have questions that are said to you. But I had some questions for you that sort of. But but one of them was really, um, do you find that the if you are attracted to the sport of swordsmanship, um, does that usually mean that you're also attracted to the elements that would have gone with swordsmanship with clothing being my first idea of going, I wonder if you would really be attracted, uh, like that you would have to wrap your body in it all the time because that itself would be a sort of training all the time when you are not actually holding a sword in your hand. Um, okay. A lot of people I know in the sword world are very, very much interested in the clothes particularly the historical clothes. And they do certainly affect your movement. And, you know, I test my interpretations in period clothing to make sure that I'm not learning to move in a way that they couldn't have moved because the clothing wouldn't allow it. Um, But I'm an absolute pain buying trousers. If I go to a shop to buy trousers, I will not wear a pair of trousers I cannot lunge in and kick in. I just won't. (laughs) Because why why would I tie my legs together like that? Um, So, but yeah... Quite a lot of people are drawn to the, the sort of the like the knightly culture of it, or mm. the more kind of three musketeersy swashbuckly culture of it, and it, it tends to go by period. So th- people who have an interest in, should we say, fourteenth century knightly combat, are going to tend to be drawn to things like riding and armor. And oh God, if all of my students would just learn to ride before they came to me, I would have half as much work to do. 
Well, and that's like that to me is that those were sort of my other thoughts, thinking of the culture and the movement going, mm. what were the movements that someone doing this would also be doing that in that, that they would have been bringing to the sport, you know, they would, be, you're so much more conditioned right. by what you do when you're not doing your sport. And I think that that's um, a poorly appreciated part of athleticism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, um, I first came across your work about six, seven years ago when Jessica Finley, who has the distinction of being not only a legend in our community, but also the first person I interviewed for the podcast. Oh. Uh, we're old friends. She introduced me to your work and, um, of course, so I told her that you were coming on the show and she got very excited. And she has a question, which I know you, you can't examine her. You, you, there are all sorts of, you're not her doctor. Let's take all that as read. And she says she's currently dealing with a shredded supraspinatus tendon and she knows two tennis elbow sufferers. She, she would like to ask you about how the stresses of a sword blow transfer to our tendons and she wonders about the difference between fast cuts through space or cuts through space where we stop in an extended position or cuts that impact a sword or a person or a heavy bag. So what can you surmise about the loads and stresses, <laughs> not knowing our art or the individual? Now, we have video that people can't see. If you want me to show you anything, I will take the sword off the rack and show it to you. That's fine. Um, but what are your, well, what are your thoughts? What are my early thoughts? Well, so I... So I you know, you said I got this question uh, yesterday and I was thinking about it. So I had to look up some things um, like, for example, the, the weight of a longsword, which I assuming mm. is what she's using. Yeah, it's about, about two kil- one pounds. and a half kilograms. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. for uh, Thank you for putting it yeah. into um, a context I can understand. But yeah, I, I mean, I was like, OK, I think it's going to be like between one and two kilos. So it's not tremendously heavy, but it is long. And its mm-hmm. length is more important than its weight in this case. Sure. Um, and I think uh, there, it's it's not super clear without knowing all the motions pretty well. But I think I have a handle on it. And um, so so the supraspinatus, it's one of the rotator cuff muscles. Yep. So it's deep inside the shoulder. This is just for everyone listening to their understanding. Mm-hmm. So um, the tendon itself just just so um, Jessica or anyone else knows that you're, you're not going to load the tendon without loading the muscle. The, the, it goes muscle to tendon to bone. So when, when tendons are loaded, it's because of what the muscles they're attached to are or are not doing. So what the supraspinatus does where it's, where it is emitting its greatest amount of tension is when your arm is reaching straight out to the side and the supraspinatus is resisting the gravitational push to push it down to your side. So okay. your arm is long. So when you reach it far away, it's more than the weight of your arm. There's a little bit of torque to calculate. But you can, if you've ever put anything in your hand, you know that the farther you move something away from your body, the more work you have to do. So now yeah. you're adding um, an extra bit of weight that's, that goes pretty far away. You're creating a mm-hmm. pretty long lever. Um, but... But the supraspinatus and its tendon stops working as much as you bring that arm out in front of you, meaning the place where it's going to be at its greatest load is when it's straight out to the side, when it's abducting. Now, if you get your arm in front of you, not by bringing your arm towards a still chest, but by turning the entire chest, then it's still Mm -hmm. straight out to the side. So it's just to set up sort of the 
the end points of when is the supraspinatus loaded the most, it's when your arm is directly off to the side of your body. And, and that is, when striking with a longsword, it is normally fairly out to the side. Okay, that was the one turn, piece. Yeah, return, right. to the, return towards the person generally. Right. So it's, we're, not, we're, not, we're not square on with our hands together like this. We are sideways on with the hands like this. Okay. So you are, you are really, um, and, and I hate to Americanize this at That's all, okay. but, but where, where the greatest amount of research is on what the shoulder is doing in mo- movements like this is in American baseball, meaning right. we can have this conversation because of the millions of dollars that have gone into batter and research. pitcher arms. Exactly. Yeah. So, so if you're, tur- so just know if you're turning it, it's, you're, you're keeping this, you're keeping the supraspinatus under quite a bit of load throughout mm-hmm. that motion. Um, and is there also, uh, so for the other parts of our question, I assume though at some point the sword is crossing, is crossing away from being straight out to the side and coming in toward a line with the gen- sternum? Gen- generally speaking, it will be coming from the right side to the left, but not terribly far away from the body sideways. So what about across? What about a, like across this way? Yeah. Well, actually, okay. the, 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 the blow that she was doing is actually going from one side to the other like this. She, she shredded it doing a, what's called a Zvara cup, which is a kind of horizontal cut above the head. Um, okay. So the other thing to know about the super smodonis tendon, though, mm. is that's a very common injury. It's a very, sure. it's, um, you know, the number of surgery, like there's a half million surgeries done on it. Um, and, and the mechanism of supraspinatus tearing and fraying is very rarely um, in a move like this. What it, what no. usually causes it is the fact that it's, it's going through, if you look up in an anatomy book, the, the muscle and the, the tendon is passing very nearby this um, hook on the bone called your acromion process. Yes. You know I, it? She said, she, she, well, 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 just said, just mentioned when we were discussing it that she's got like an especially hooky one or something. So Right. So so what happens is it's really the acromion process. For, it's the attendant Framing. passing back and yeah. forth. And so it's the interaction between the two. But where the where you get the greatest amount is just throughout the day using your arms. It, it's, it's because I would imagine that it has. I mean, of course, it's going to be related to what you do under high loads, but it's really mm-hmm. under what you do at the greatest volume. And right. so what I am, what I imagine, like, so there's people who have an acromion process that is extra hooky, if we're going to stick yep. with the technical term. And, <laughs> um, and what it does is if you also have a lot of muscle mass in a way where, where your body sort of builds more on the front because the things you're doing are in front of mm-hmm. you, perhaps more than the rear is you reduce that space and so even being on the computer, even being on the computer is fray time, uh, oh, reaching God. out and making tea, fray time. And so, oh, and so it's, it's really to understand. And that's my big point with my work um, about mechanics is it's likely what you do all of the time, not only when you're in your conscious movement time, that's contributing to the outcome of things. And so for athletes, if I'm working with athletes, who have a particular injury, it's like, yes, of course, you're going to, I assume that her form at this level is already spot on, but it should be pretty good. It should be pretty good. It's like a, you're here to hear. It's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that, that, the, the form doing it do in the sport is maximized, but maybe it's the form when you're not in the sport, that is your greatest space 
for a more robust recovery and a longer duration of sport. And so that's what I do is like, let me show you how you are holding your supraspinatus and your infraspinatus and all of your rotator cuffs when you're not practicing your sport so that your body is more robust so that when you do it, you can do it better and longer. Right. Okay. And so how would you prevent fraying? Well, to prevent fraying, you have to get the tendon off of the acromion process. So, you know, for in, I don't know if her um, physician or her orthopedics. uh, She's had surgery for it. Yeah. So, but usually they talk, I mean, posture is one of those known elements, Mm -hmm. like all the time positioning. So I'm sure she'll have some physiotherapy that will talk about it, but it's just with athletes. It's like, when am I going to get back to my sport? How do I do this? And it's like, I think that if we could recognize that we're trying to train your sport all the time through that better positioning, rather than rehab to get back to the sport, your body will be much happier doing the sport. Um, yeah, giving space, giving joint space through all day positioning when you're not doing the sport right. is how you would take, how you would move the tendon away. Away from it. From the, Yeah, okay. you have to create more space for that tendon to move. And it's a very common, the very common, um, uh, let me, what do I want to say? Like uh, um, where you move from one thing to another, there's a better word for it, but I have young children, so I don't remember what it is anymore. Um, <laughs> progression. Thank you. The progression. They do that. Yeah, they do. Um, the progression is, you know, you usually go... Um, there's usually um, a shoulder bursitis, you know, like mm-hmm. small amounts of pain. And then it goes to um, usually a, a supraspinatus tendon thing. And then it can go to mm-hmm. bicep tendon thing. So it moves down to the elbow and it can become frozen shoulder. Right. Be- and and it's, only just, it's only just to say that if we always think about the thing we have is coming from what we do the least amount of time, we, we miss... The, the biological fact that your body, the tissues and the, are adapting to what you do 100%, 100%. of the time. Yeah. So that form that you so painstakingly think about when you're doing the thing that you love, um, that there's a form for standing and walking and moving through daily life too. And that's um, equally important, if not more so, because it becomes the platform that holds up the thing that you do with the greatest flow. So that's the baseline that we're after. Thank you for saying that. Because, okay, um, I don't actually train nearly as much as most people think I do in terms of like specific blocked out time in which I'm practicing swordsmanship specifically. But when I'm cooking dinner or emptying the dishwasher or going for a walk or getting into the car or it's all practice, all the time there are there are no no moments when there isn't you know maybe if i'm like completely focused on you know writing a book or watching a movie or something then i'm maybe not thinking about form but but it's all the time and you know i had um this uh i'm going to call him a self-defense expert but that's not a fair description of what rory miller actually does and we were kind of geeking out over over the kind of continual training thing where he he's basically just practicing this kind of strike where you which you know if you know what you're doing you can really hurt people with but he's just as he's kind of going along doing ordinary things he's practicing this strike maybe four or five thousand times a day right he's very 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 good at that strike because he's gotten ridiculous numbers of reps in right and it's 
it's it's getting getting students to realize that you don't train in the training hall you train to get ready to get to the training hall and then when you're there you're practicing all the other cool stuff but it's based on this like pyramid of other practices that mean that when you get into the training hall all that stuff is taken care of and you can focus on applying it to specific sword styles yeah ah, yeah yes yeah i agree um i just wanted to add one more piece yeah please to uh to jessica's question for anyone else who, who talks about general shoulder loads and what i was going to say about baseball is there's a quite common pattern of injury I was going to say the, the other thing that the super spinatus does besides um, hold the arm up. And I think this is relevant for everyone who has shoulder issues, no matter what they are specifically, mm -hmm. the, because of the way that the tendon attaches, it's also sort of nestling the shoulder, the head of the humerus, the upper arm, the top of the upper arm bone against the glenoid fossa, which is the, the, the other articulating part of the shoulder, right? What the head of the humerus is sliding against. It's, it's pulling it always holding that in. So a very common baseball injury to the shoulder, because there's quite a tremendous amount of force that goes huge into a force, swing, yeah. huge amount, um, is when they don't hit something, oh, it's God. much more damaging for the shoulder Jimmy, than when they than do. When they do. So, so when, when you hit something, what happens is you, you know you're going to hit it and you are – you're, it's a controlled motion. It's not just, a, you know, it's not like dropping a heavy arm and it's swinging, or at least it shouldn't be. You, you, you actually put on the brakes. So I think it's very similar yeah. to a martial art where you don't just send if you're going to break something with your hand. You're not necessarily throwing your hand down through something. You're hitting it hard and stopping it at the point to apply a particular force. Yeah. It's a little different with swords, but yeah. the, the principle can apply. Yeah, the, the idea that you are you are putting, you, you are holding your shoulder stable, more stable mm -hmm. when you hit something than when you when swing, swing through, through really hard. Right. Cause I okay. feel like that was maybe the question, like if I'm hitting a bag, is that mm. more or less? And I think that it would often be less damaging for the shoulder when you're hitting something than when you're not. Now, if you're changing directions quickly, I think the, the phenomenon of the fact that you're putting on your own brakes and keeping your shoulder stable applies because you're not necessarily making sure. contact but you're mindfully engaging you're, it, yeah, I think, steer away. Yeah. Exactly. So that, that's, the, that's just to finish that question. And then to your point earlier, uh, yeah, uh, the idea, I think, that, I think that when people are drawn to a sport, the idea is if you're doing it at this high level, then you must be doing it at this high level all of the time. And we're seeing that in youth sports. You know, everyone wants mm -hmm. to specialize their children. Oh, you like basketball? Play basketball all the time. But, but no. really high-level athletes, no, they do really better not – Spe not specializing and, and developing a, a wide breadth of capable movements for which actually elevate their, their um, preferred or the sport that they're better at. So just think about that for yourself and going, I'm, I'm going to be practicing elements of what I do all the time in everyday life. And then I have a very wide base uh, to which be right. successful upon. Excellent. Okay. Now, we have to talk about feet because yeah. <laughs> I've, I've read, I've read your stuff about, about high heels and what have you. And, um, okay. When Jess came to visit me in Finland and that's when she told me about your stuff, we were, it was February. It was you know, snow and ice on the ground. 
because it's Finland, and we were both wearing medieval-style shoes with flat leather soles, right, and warm socks inside them because it was cold, but no big, chunky, solid socks. And we, were, we, and we were strolling around on the ice and the snow, no problem at all, right? And I, I got into um, the barefoot shoe thing through medieval shoes. And, you know, I was in Verona, we were at attending this medieval event and I thought I better just check that my shoes are working properly for me and so the night before I was just wandering around the streets of Verona with my wife very romantic very lovely (laughs) and I had these medieval shoes on and oh my god you could just feel everything right these beautiful worn stone you could you could it was like you could feel the heart of the city beating under your feet oh god it was gorgeous anyway so um to me at least you're preaching to the converted but okay. I, I do know, I do know that there's an awful lot of people who like swords who also like, like fancy shoes. I am one of them. I have a, I own more shoes than my wife does. Um, and it really kills me that I can't justify the heel on my fancy brogues anymore. It's just, so I have these beautiful shoes. I almost <laughs> never wear them like weddings and funerals and that's it. Um, but, um, so tell us about, feet and shoes and how they affect movement and that sort of thing. Oh, well, the feet, uh, you know, for upright human beings, I always think of uh, the feet, and you could think of them as the ears or the eyes to the ground. They have, they have this sensory equipment that is informing the rest of your neurological system, sort of how to adjust positioning naturally. So if we were to talk about creating an environment to which you were adjusting your body parts um, optimally, having big shoes upon your feet is a main disruptor for that natural organization that you would have because we're really adjusting ourselves to the shoes. The shoes is the new environment underfoot. So everything that we have, I mean, if you imagine just a heel, you know, and a heel on a trainer is a heel. I'm not talking about like the high-heeled shoe. I'm talking about a what's called a positive heel geometrically, anything. Any elevation under the heel. Any elevation under the heel that's not under the toe puts your feet uh, pointing down a small slope. So so you make these whole body adjustments to your knees and your hips and your spine. Um, You're shifting your center of mass to adjust. And there's nothing wrong with a slope. It's just that it wouldn't be normal to walk on a slope or down a slope for endless miles for years of your life, right? And never walk uphill. So it's it's just that. It's like um, if you if you have this concept of, right, I want to adapt my environment so that my parts can orient my structure for the optimal center of gravity that it takes just to walk around, right? This is, this is again, the benefit of why it's not only optimal to get not knocked over, you know, when someone's shoving you. I mean, that's important in your sport, but we're slowly becoming, uh, our bodies are slowly adapting to this position that makes just walking easy to knock us over, right? Like that's why you sort right. of see, like we become less stable as we get older, but we just have this longer term adaptation to not moving or moving in these really unnatural, not moving very much. And when we do, it's in these really unnatural environments that don't necessarily promote so, natural mechanics that um, move well. Um, and you have a lot of joints in the feet. Um, if you look at your hands, I know it's, it seems weird to, to say it because we're such a hand 
dominant culture that has covered our feet from mm-hmm. infancy, but your feet and your hands are very similar um, in dexterity, in uh, manipulation and sensory, the environment, you know, they, they do different things, but they curl and they grasp and they feel and they spread out and they mm. wrap pinkies around different things. Yeah. I actually use one of your foot spreading exercises. I run these regular sort of three times a week kind of conditioning classes, mostly so I don't get too fat in lockdown. Mm. But we have, I, I use some of your foot spreading exercises that I got from one of your books. Like yeah. literally it's three times a week in, in these things, just, just to get people moving their feet and for most people coming, it's the first time they've deliberately spread their toes since, well, they were, maybe when they, they did it when they were a kid. Yeah, and, and I think for any, for any athlete or anyone, for anyone trying to get better at something, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're, you're pulling from as many resources as you can. You're like, I'll take all the books. I'll take all the classes. I'll do the prescribed exercises. I'll do the prescribed flows or processes. But a lot of times we haven't even pulled from we're using all of our body yet. I mean, it's like right. to me, I'm like – you know, there's a, like 40% of your body isn't even online right now. So, so when you're doing these big exercises, so, um, you know, I said your feet have a lot of joints, they have 33 joints in each foot, 25%, 25% of the, the number of, uh, bones and muscles in your body reside from the ankle down. So imagine, right. imagine not, Bringing and it's obviously not in terms of mass, but it's in it's in terms of precision. Yeah. So if you have all of these parts that could be affecting where you're loading and how, and you haven't even started training with them, those feet of yours, even though you've been training for years, imagine the progress you could make without even adding anything new, except inviting your feet to play. So it's right. it's really just it's those ideas of um you know your toes move individually. Your feet, um, and it, it'd be interesting. Do you do a lot of outdoor training where the where the surface underneath? You know, you you talk about you go out and you feel, but um, they've done these experiments where they've put textured mats inside of people's shoes, um, mm-hmm. and every single different texture that they pick, and the and the textures are fine, right? You know, like small mm-hmm. bumps or tiny lines. Every texture moves your calf muscles differently. That's wow. that's how you know. Imagine. Imagine reading Braille. Our fingers are so sensitive that we can read Braille. You know, if anyone does body work, they can feel when a thread of a muscle is over tense. We are extremely, we are amazing, beautiful sensory creatures. And so when you put these textured mats in, you're moving different calf fibers. And, and um, the idea that if, if we trained in, um, not always flat and level and indoor rubber. Like what would it be like yeah. to do a session where your feet were, where your feet, bare feet were on the earth? Like what, I would be really interesting to see what that would be like for um, those of you who've done it regularly in other environments. Well, I can tell you what happens to me. Like twice in the last two years, I've gotten stung by a wasp. Oh, there you go. So you become stronger. <laughs> no, no, really not. No, it was horrible. I, um, yeah, but yes, there is, there's a lot of value to be had at training outside anyway, but also training outside barefoot. And the thing is, for a lot of the later period swordsmanship styles that we practice, like anything before, should we say, 1500, we're wearing medieval shoes which are totally barefoot friendly. Yeah. Right? 
and they should have a very thin, flexible leather sole. And they're basically like a leather sock that protects you from cuts and grazes, but they have no structure at all. Right. Um, and, of course, a lot of the modern ones, the modern reproductions, are actually built with a thick, stiff leather sole, which is no, no use at all. Mm. Mm. Um, just because that's, that's what people expect from a shoe. Right. And also because right. we're probably on, you know, medieval shoes where we're going to be mostly on dirt and, and probably sure. wear down much differently. And people are like, I paid yeah. good money for that and I need my shoe to not wear out for this many right. years. And so they're there beefing up the material. Yeah. Um, but then in the 16th century, uh, people started putting heels on their shoes yeah. for fashion reasons more than anything else. And so by the 17th century, people are often actually fighting duels wearing like mm. two and a half inch, three inch heels because men wore high heels because you know, one had to show off a fancy calf and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. So stockings and high heels is mm-hmm. male fashion, people. It is. Okay. Very much is. Um, so um, obviously one of the things we need to do as historical martial artists is recreate that. And I absolutely just won't because I respect my knees and I want them to last forever. But I have many friends who are, shall we say, braver than me and more historically minded. And so can you suggest how they can go about that without destroying their legs and backs? I think certainly. I I think that, um, you know, I imagine that the total amount of time that you would have to be in a dueling outfit of, Mm -hmm. you know, your celebrating that it's very going to be very small compared to what you're wearing the rest of the time. So, um, you know, those periods are small and those periods aren't necessarily destructive. It's when, again, your baseline of behavior, it's like, well, those trainers look suspiciously similar in height to the heel that you acknowledge. So if you could go to minimal the rest of the time, it's fine. It's very, it's very similar to eating. You know, you're going to throw out a creme brulee or a big piece of, birthday cake or have a party or a festive season where your eating is going to, or lockdown where your eating is going to be <laughs> different than, than what you normally do around it. And so it's, it's just that, I mean, I think ceremonially, um, and even if it's on the regular, if you just are being really objective about time, I wear shoes this many hours a week and it's this many hours a week. I'm in these, but the rest of the time in these, I think that's totally um, fine. And you will not find it to be destructive, um, to your body parts in that way. And then also maybe to think about, um, you know, I'm not sure if, um, it would be really interesting to know, cause I know a lot of, in a lot of different, uh, activities, part of that activity, maybe after a battle would be some sort of decon, uh, not deconditioning, some sort of care, you know, if you were yeah. being massaged like out down or, or, yeah. say that again, what was it? Warm down or decompression. Exactly. But maybe even more like massage to a body part or if there was Mm -hmm. a certain restorative protocol. So creating some sort of restorative protocol after the period of time when you wear your shoes, which is like, I'm going to stretch these things out. And I think that's fine. Okay. Well, in which case I'm now going to plug, I have these free courses um, called human maintenance and that includes a how to massage your knees, calves, ankles, and feet. So yes, go ahead and add that on. Listeners, (laughs) add that on. Yes. Katie says it's okay to use your high heels um, when you must. Uh, as, long as, long as, you guy, as long as you get this course after. As long as you do guys' knee massage afterwards, <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> Talk about putting words in your mouth. All right. Um, okay. So now your latest book, which I have read an advanced copy of, 
it's a manifesto about getting kids to move more and you organize it by environments, culture, clothing, home, and so on. So the way I see it, your, your approach is to create environments in which moving is natural. So the, 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 if you like, the thoughtless response to the environment you're in is to move more. Um, so it's also how we create safe training for us because you know, we have a very dangerous activity and so we create an environment in which safe behavior is considered normal and anything unsafe is perceived as weird and unnatural. Mm. Right? So people naturally behave safely. So how do you create environments where people will get a better range of movement styles and, and more movement um, movement span? Well, I think my, my general approach is to first recognize and acknowledge um, how you're moving and, and specifically not only how many minutes, you know, I, I think that we are trained, like we've been trained to really consider exercise is what movement is. And like, that was the big point of move your DNA. It's like, we're so biased to only seeing exercises, movement or training periods that we do not recognize that we are moving 100% of the time by definition on the cellular level. And it's just that our exercise program, if you will, looks like eight to 10 hours of sitting in a chair a day. That that is the exercise. Those are the muscles Mm. that we're exercising on the regular. That's what and that's the strength that our body is suited for. We, our body is changing to make sitting easier and easier on us. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. I don't want you to have to lengthen the back of your hip muscles. So I'm just going to sort of, every time you sit down, so I'm going to sort of set them to this extra long length and then set these to these extra short lengths. And because we do it so frequently when we get up, right. it doesn't really change anymore. It's, it's, it's more adaptive yes. in this way, longer term. Um, so once you acknowledge that you're moving all the time and, and there's even a whole section on clothes, you know, like what you put on your body is restrictive. I mean, you're thinking about trousers and because you're like, I'm going to eat to lunge and bend over. But we put our kids in things that don't let their ankles move. Their legs are bound together. Their arms don't rise over their shoulders. And these are normal clothes. And we have play clothes, but it's like no one ever calls the rest of their clothes their sedentary clothes. So it's, it's this idea of just recognizing what movement is and then recognizing how you move and how you don't. And then, and then doing things like um, reducing the amount of furniture in your house or changing it so that it's different um, shapes so that you naturally, if you're going to, oh, what do we have there? So I just moved the camera um, so you can see there's this big empty area here, which yeah. is mostly for, you know, sitting on the floor or I have a ball and... You know, yeah, sitting on that and you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I might even clip, clip that bit out because that was a bit... <laughs> I, I sort of forgot we were having a podcast and just thought, ah, Katie's talking about this. I should show her this big empty space. Well, I think it's good. I mean, I think that it's okay even if you can't see it. It's this idea that, yeah. you know, if you look around your house and you're like, there is no space for me to get on the floor and stretch out. I couldn't even do a right. practice move while I'm watching... TV. I, I couldn't even just imagine going through a few things because there's the coffee table right there is against my knee. It's like, why? Why is it there? Can you can you make space in your home for movement? And then if you have children, um, it's especially important that movement that your home has a culture that makes movement per- permissive. So you've created a studio sure. where where to be unsafe is sort of the outlying behavior. Well, all of our spaces right now have made movement the outlying behavior. It's just right. that. And so we need to um, be really mindful about what movement permissive 
rules look like, communications look like, and then literally the spaces that make it safe for people, what the infrastructure might be. And they're not expensive. They're not complicated. It's just like you've shown. It's moving things out of the way. Maybe you don't need um, 30 seats in a home when there's only four bottoms that live there, you know, like looking at your chair to butt ratio of your house and, and making adjustments like that to set, to set kids up for more movement. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of very keen on, uh, in, you know, my wife and I watch TV in the evening before going to bed and what have you, but I have a exercise mat on the floor mm-hmm. and I'm usually on the floor doing stretches and whatever and moving around. Then I go on the sofa for a bit and I get back on the floor and on the sofa for a bit and back on the floor just because, um, I am blessed with a dodgy spine, which means if I don't do my regular stretching, I seize up quite quickly, which means I can't spend like days and days on the sofa because I would just be in agony and unable to move. So, um, so it sounds like a bad thing, but it actually means that we've basically had to provide these sorts of spaces in the house because I literally can't, can't survive without them. And, um, and I think one other thing just, to circle back to what you said, mm-hmm. it seems like you've identified agony as the feeling that you don't like when you have. And so you move naturally when you don't want the feeling of agony, sort right. of like in the training. And I think that what because we don't recognize our own sedentarism, many of us have feelings. So this would be like taking the analogy of saying, you know, when you're doing when you're in a position and you're you know dropping your arm or whatever, that you've associated a feeling with when the position is working and when it's not working. You've given them yeah. two different languages. Because we don't recognize our own sedentary, own state of constant sedentariness, if that's a word, um, we probably have a feeling that we already associate with our whole person being under moved. For you, yeah. it seems like agony of the back, you know, that maybe that's the part yeah. where it arises. Everyone listening, like for me, it's like a sluggish brain fog. I just feel terrible when I don't mm-hmm. move a lot. And I think that many of us have that. We just might not associate it with the fact that we're not moving on the regular because we haven't really learned to correct it by by moving on the regular or experienced what moving on the regular feels like enough to know, like, I feel joyful and clear headed when I move a lot. And so when I feel uh, sluggish and foggy headed, I know that movement is what I go to, to adjust the feeling. Or if I adjust my feeling first and then I start moving, I'm not sure which one is actually happening, but I think we can take some of the training things that you said to help the person listening apply this to more than just the form of the thing that they love. You, also, you mentioned like having a permissive attitude to movement. I mean, I imagine people working in offices doesn't happen so much during the pandemic, but um, like you're not supposed to get up and wander around or get up and do push-ups or, you know, or, or, or there's this sort of expectation that you'll be wearing these clothes that you can't move in and yeah. sat at a desk or even these days maybe even stood at a desk, but even just standing all day, isn't great. Right. Yeah. And I think that um, that's why we need that um, more robust understanding of movement, that every change in position is a different movement. Um, I wrote a whole book on um, office, what you do in an office and I'm expanding it. So it'll be coming out. uh, The next one will be movement works because for many people, the hindrance to movement, like children, the hindrance to movement is often their work, which is the educational setting, which is right. you know fairly sedentary. It's just the same version of many people going to work and 
where the expectation is your professional clothing is sedentary, that your work atmosphere is everyone's just sitting. It's just sedentary, sedentary, sedentary. So it does take a cultural shift, but. And you just sit on the way to work. Oh yeah. I mean the transport, there's no active, there's no active transportation. I mean, we're really just moving in small bits in between long bouts of sitting. We just don't like, we've sort of associated TV time with the sitting and everything else is just necessity. Um, so no. like even learning how to sit differently, right? Like if you're going to sit, maybe you can opt for a different form because if, if you know that sitting, um, makes you, I mean, I think that's where ergonomics comes in is this idea of like, Oh, I've been sitting and these are the pains and this is the feeling that I have. It's like, well, we're going to adjust your position while you're sitting. We're going to adjust sort of the you know furniture around you for, um, maybe a more vital positioning. And then now mm-hmm. there's the okay, well, we, you do need to be up every 30 minutes um, to move around. So what are the things that we, have, that we have just accepted that it would be better to just, you know, email someone around the office instead of just getting right. up and walking? When you needed the walking break anyway, um, three emails to do something that a one-minute conversation could have done more seamlessly with, you know, human cues of, oh, I see you accept yeah. that or you don't accept that or I just thought that. I mean, everything has just gone to tiny finger pecks yeah. and um, eyes looking at something 20 inches um, from our face. And we've just sort of all moved down into this is the acceptable culture, but I don't think it is. I don't think Finland would say that it is. I, I think that, um, you know, I think that there are many cultures that haven't done this. We're just one that's doing it. And, and I'm just trying to stand up at this point and saying, I think we might need to do something different because we've had the billions of dollars of research to say it. We know it. Now it just seems to be, what do we do about none of our spaces are set up for it? That seems to be the step that we're on now. Yeah. And and it's it's funny, in in certain parts of the world, like Asia, for instance, it's perfectly normal to see people like, instead of sitting, they're squatting. Sure. Right. And, you know, I do do it in bookshops. If I need to get down to the bottom shelf and I want to have a look at the book, I just squat down and I I look at the book. And and these people kind of look at me kind of side-eye like, who's that weird? You know, one of the great things about being a professional sortative instructor in the 21st century is you can just say, well, yes, I'm a weirdo. So I can do these crazy things. No one expects me to be normal. Yeah. Right. Which is great. But for most people, they don't have that sort of, I don't know, license to be weird. They're freak flags. Right. (laughs) So, so, you know, like I I found for a while that um, I kind of, it wasn't a rule exactly, just sort of a habit. Whenever I looked at my phone for any reason, I'd squat down. So the position in which I would fiddle about on my phone would be in a squat, yeah. right? Rather than sitting in a chair or standing up or whatever else. And it just kind of added a bit more squatting to my day, which was, I don't know. I, I think I move fairly much anyway, so I don't think it necessarily made that much difference. But I have a lot of students who can't comfortably squat. Yeah, that's a big portion of my work is to help people do that because... Because when you've, once you've lost it, it takes, it takes a regimented plan to get it back uh, yeah. for sure. And that's a big okay. one. Squats being lost and knees and hip, knee and hip problems that result from, I mean, the therapy that you're going to get for knee and hip problems from a physiotherapist are just elements of squatting and floor sitting, you know, right. done, 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 done raised up at first. Yeah. So that's why, you know, it's like, um, I think that we will see movement permeate because um, it's so clear why we can't move right now as a massive yeah. group of people and the solution. I mean, I wrote this book for kids because I've been writing them for adults and they're like, I wish that someone had just set me up on better 
you know, legs, if you will. I wish that yeah. someone knew this. And I was like, okay, well then now we will speak to the parents and allo parents and therapists and educators mm-hmm. to say, you you are creating this environment. So what what changes can we set the next generation off? Because we know that what we did for this last one isn't working for us as adults. The, a lot of the ailments we yeah. have as adults are really pediatric issues manifesting in later adulthood. And that's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's essentially all I do at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. My own kids are 14 and 12 and they are, I guess, reasonably active. One thing I've noticed with my youngest, again, during lockdown and stuff, we've not been bugging them to do anything. We can't really take them places. It's been you know, quite difficult to, you know, make their experience of being locked away from their friends actually bearable. Um, but my youngest, she will spend like literally all day lying on the sofa watching Vampire Diaries kind of TV. Except if you actually look at what she actually does, about every 25 minutes, she gets up, she puts on a YouTube video with music and dances for two or three songs. And then she gets back to what she was doing, yeah. watching the TV. Yeah. Right? She's, and she's fed her body. Yeah, no, no, one, no one has told her to do that, but she's naturally doing that. Uh, I don't know why. No, you know, she just sort of figured out that's what she likes to do, so that's what she does. Um, and my eldest... She is constantly wandering around the house, like, like she'll just wander into a room, and wander out again. Because, and you know, she would, she would rather take most of her meals moving. Mm-hmm. So, so she'll kind of get up and eat her breakfast, kind of wandering around the house. And I'm like, I, I am not going to, in, anything that gets a child to actually move. I am not interfering with unless it's directly and immediately dangerous. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, but so, um. It's you know, reading your book, it, it, it would make, you know, I kind of wish I'd read the book like 10 years ago because it would have helped with some things. Um, but do you have any suggestions for like people with older kids? How do you get older kids who've already kind of bought into the let's sit all day culture? How do you get them out of it when it's not supported at school and it's not necessarily supported in most homes? Well, I mean, I just always like to remind everyone that we, we, Meaning, I mean, I'm 45. I'm not sure how old you are, but you know, I'm an I'm an adult, and um, I was very sedentary until mm-hmm. my early adulthood, and it's fine. You know, like I I was able to become a robust mover despite not having a ton of movement. Now, the the difference is the unprecedented difference is um, is the devices factor. Right. That's in a completely yeah. new environment. I mean, I didn't get I didn't get a computer in my home as something that I use regularly until later twenties. And I didn't have a smartphone or anything until I was thirties. So when you look at that and, and and everyone's like, your eight year old should totally have it. And I was like, remember that these things were, we acquired them as an, as an adult. It's sort of like when cigarettes first came out, the younger kids were smoking them too. The adults and the kids all got this new thing at once. And then, and then you sort of saw it adjust over 50 or 60 years because you, there was just more awareness of what was going on. So we're just not quite there yet. But, um, you know, I'm assuming by older kids, you really mean teenagers because teenagers are... <laughs> <laughs> they, fun. Fun is yeah, the word you're looking exactly, for. Teenagers exactly. are fun. They're just fun. Um, and what I would recommend is 
there is probably something that your teenagers are extremely passionate about. Everyone says video games. They love video games or whatever. Um, but I think that if you get into a dialogue, you're going to find that usually someone, um, you know, maybe it's like, I really love animals or I, re- you know, or, or even like, I think like I have a kid who's very much into swordsmanship. And, hey, like, hey, excellent. Send him to me. I know. He's already asked. He's like, when can I, can we all go to this school for a month? And like, just, and I was like, yes, I don't know, of course can. Yes. Okay, great. We can go. Um, and, and so, and my, and my daughter, I mean, all of us are sort of into it a, a wee bit, a wee, wee bit. Um, mm-hmm. But um, if you can find the thing that they're passionate about, even if it seems inconvenient to you, because like, maybe you'll say someone like, I love horses. And you're like, that's great. Well, we don't have a farm and we can't do that. To, to realize that there's probably some way that you can, whatever their passion is, like, I always ask my kids, like, I don't want any rules. Don't, don't limit when I'm asking you these questions. Just imagine and come up with it. And yeah. then, then they, they, they do the work to sort of, um, I think that's the, sort of the side effect of so many devices or technologies. There's a lot of loss of creativity and, and having to produce without the, without the input help. Mm. Sort of like you imagine and assemble things yourself. You know, like boredom is truly amazing for getting creative and inventing things that didn't exist before. Katie, I actively build boredom time into my schedule. You need it. <laughs> if I don't have time to be bored, I'm not, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to put the interesting things together. That that's will... right. That's right. Yeah. And I, I, and I think that that's where ideas, I mean, ideas come from boredom. Like, but you know, my, right. my daughter started making, my daughter, who loves adorning her body made herself. Oh, I've seen the pictures in the book. Yeah, yeah. she made, she made, she made, well, that was when she was younger. She actually made herself a pair of high heeled shoes out of cardboard and electrical tape and paper mache. She's clopping around. And, you know, I don't say you can't wear them. Like we have all minimal shoes. So she puts them on, she's clopping around. She's like, I can't, I'm like falling over every time I wear these. I was like, Oh, exactly. So then she went and made a pair of minimal shoes that were beautiful and wound all around her legs and had mm. buttons. So like there's an engineering. I think that humans are te- humans are engineers. Humans are Lego. We all are sort of like imagining Lego, except we're doing it with ideas. We're doing it with words. We're doing it mm. with materials. But as we pre-buy things to tinker with and say, here's what you can build, we're sort of blowing through our tinkering energy without having to come up with the things ourselves you know to work with the mud to figure out metals like all these things can't like that's that's where new things come from but you know what it reminds me of actually because yeah, i'm a woodworker i used to be a cabinet maker and so you know i'm used to taking like a big piece of wood and doing stuff with hand tools and making it into different shapes of little little smaller bits of wood and then putting them together and then you get the thing that i've imagined yes right so that that's like standard um which is worlds away from assembling things out of parts that other people have decided the shape of. That's right, right? that's right. But this, this is what pro- programmers are like. Like, you know, I, I don't touch computers except through some fancy graphical interface where somebody else has decided yeah. these are the things that you can do and I can put these things together in ways that, that work for me and that's fine. But I have friends who are programmers who they look at that and they're just horrified. Like, why would you not just build that thing entirely from scratch so that you can get it exactly the way you want it, which is just like me selecting a piece of wood and making things exactly the way I want them, right? And 
the so the problem is of course that programmer is going to be doing most of that sitting down doing this so we get have to get that same creativity and apply it to domains that involve movement yeah and i think that also it's important to understand how culture works mm-hmm. it's that um when you have systems that work a particular way, like we are all sort of on computers now, then what you can expect is people who think in terms of building it exactly as you want becomes Mm -hmm. what this culture ends up creating more and more of. So you end up creating more people who um, flourish in that way. And then uh, systems that utilize people who flourish in that way. And then that, that's what eventually takes us down a particular path, which is why it's always nice. I know, look, are we both squeezing balls as we do it? <laughs> yeah, I just I just noticed that Katie yeah. was holding a kind of a squeezy ball thing. And of course I have one on my desk. Yeah, yeah. So. And I've been, I've been rolling my feet out this entire, for the last hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. You're just, it's like a fidgeting thing. So it's just- Are you sure we're not twins? We might be, we might be. Um, yeah, I mean, really, as you've spoken, I'm like, I feel like we've met before, perhaps. Um, but yes, I think that it's nice to preserve. I mean, there's many, everyone comes with their own strengths of the way that they would want to build it. Mm-hmm. But but when when we only have a small selection of toys that we buy kids and, mm-hmm. and activities that are acceptable for kids, what you do is you lose the wide breadth of um, capitalizing. It's really interesting that, so my son, who loves swordsmanship, is, and he's always had a stick from a very level on these extensive routines. And he's yeah. like, I, look, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in their face. I'm on the side. You know, he would always make paper mache uh, helmets and things. He also woodworks. He whittles wands I, and he whittles swords and daggers right, uh, all day excellent. long. So so is it the element of wood? You know, how like is it that uh, that relationship with the flow and the fact that I'm, I'm I don't know. I'm just I'm rambling now. But I think that we need to be preserving um, many different outlets and, and not make movement and movement really needs to be the movement is a human necessity. So even though we've gotten rid of maybe the need for it um, in the short term, it's there in our bodies in the long yeah. term. So it'll be interesting to see how we can. Uh, I got to help people, you know, who worked at Google who are busy doing them. I mean, they're yeah. making the world go around and, you know, in so many ways as far as like programmers and making things mm-hmm. accessible because they're in lockdown too. So not only are they doing that small amount of work, they're doing that small amount, like tiny, t- you know, looking yeah. at things. Like and typing. Now they're yeah. doing it in their homes, never even going to where other people are, yeah. you know, and they're in big cities oftentimes in very small apartments. And they're like, how are we going to keep, you know, these folks healthy enough to, because they're running, because the world is running on sort of them tiny tapping and doing these things. So how can we make, if, if our, if our society is going to say that these are the, the workers that we require to do the lifestyle, then we have to make sure that we would be okay with our children doing that job or ourselves doing that job. And that's how you, that's a good way to, I think, assess a technology, like if it's a good step or not. Right. And Okay, I have several friends who write books and some of them do it while walking because they're mm-hmm. dictating. So instead of, instead of sitting at the desk all the time, they're, they're going on like a two or three hour walk and they come back with like, I don't know, five, 10,000 words of new material, which then, then they'll sit at the desk and do the editing because they mm-hmm. need to kind of see the text and what have you. But most people would have spent four or five hours typing that stuff in but they found a way to do it while actually 
out and moving. And it's not a stretch to think that they'll be able to do similar things like that with maybe VR headsets or mm-hmm. things like that. Oh, yeah. I think that there'll be a solution. We just have to identify the problem. The problem yeah. is uh, this work is requiring sedentarism. So how can we produce what we need to produce in a more dynamic way? I mean, the problem is uh, and- complicated. But, but also, you know, when there are jobs that, for example, you're in a very noisy environment or, you know, well, these days, like, there's a threat of viral infection. What, what, what protective measures do you put in place so that the worker is not harmed by the job they have to do? Yeah. Right? Why not? Why, why aren't they doing the same thing in offices? I think because the, the um, damage takes so long to show up. Right. You know, I mean, I think it's very easy to say, well, yes, you're going to do this for us 10 hours a day, but, you know, you're free to do what you want the rest of the time. But the rest of the right. world is now responding to what it's all. Yeah. I mean, especially now, now is a very heightened piece of time where almost 100 percent of living is done online. I mean, even ordering right. food, even going out to eat or getting food, which used to have like all the components of it. I wrote a book of essays, Movement Matters, and it was really saying, we just don't see that, you know, if you push your key fob to unlock your car, like what movement was that really saving us from? Like that was from like putting a key in and turning the wrist a quarter turn. Like, did we really need to get rid of that? Like, was that a big inconvenience? And so you have to really start looking at things to be like, to look at them in terms of not time, but movement. So if you assess, if you assess convenience, not by it saves me time to say it saves me movement. And therefore, because it saves so much movement, it doesn't actually save time at all because I still needed that movement. And now I've lived a whole entire day without having any movement built in. And now I'm four hours under moved. Now I'm four hours under moved and I have no more time. It doesn't save time at all. It doesn't save time at all. So reframe it. Yeah, that saves way. movement. Convenience and saves if, movement. And if and if employers had to pay for that movement time to make up for, in the same way that employers pay for, you know, various like physiotherapy or whatever, if they had to pay for that movement time to make up for the sitting time, then I think employers would be pretty quick to, you know, make make the the job itself less sedentary. Yeah, it's almost more like carbon offsetting, right? Like, right. Um, you, you know, you buy credits, like, we, okay, we owe you this many movement credits, you know? And <laughs> I mean, I think because we're so, uh, we're so economics centric as, as our pretty mm-hmm. much main assessment of things are good or yeah. bad, you know, if like, we're going to have to convert everything into like, how much is this going to cost the nation as a whole to deal with symptoms of sedentarism and how much sedentarism do you require or promote to get this job done, then you get this many movement credits later on instead right. of vacation time, you're getting movement credits. And, and then it could be like, okay, well, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how it works given we all have different movement capabilities, but I think, I think that at, I think that soon we'll, we just have to recognize that human, human, um, what do I want to say? It's a, we're sort of a commodity where our, our movement is the thing that's cost, like that we're, pay, we're paying with our lack, we're paying with our stillness and yeah. we're not being, we're not recouping that. And it doesn't work like an economics because it's a physical living tissue. So you can't right. not move between your twenties and thirties and then make it up in your fifties because getting to your fifties depends on you moving so, in your 20 and 30. So it's, we're not as mechanistic or um, as able to commoditize ourselves um, as maybe we think. 
Yes, I would agree. Um, now, we've been, <laughs> we we are already quite 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 a bit longer than I was expecting, which is great, and I have all the time in the world. Um, so, if you're happy to go on, then yeah, let's do a couple more, and then I'll, have, I'll like maybe like fifteen minutes more if that works. Okay. Oh, yeah. Sure. Okay. Now, this is a question I ask many of my guests, and yeah, you know, you've done a whole load of things already like writing books and moving out into the wilderness so you can run around in forest all day. Um, but what is the best idea you haven't acted on yet? Um, uh, retirement. <laughs> retirement. Retire- well, I, I mean, I think, I think it's not, it's, retirement isn't the right word. It is um, like the best idea to me is uh, I spend a lot of my time explaining uh, theories and historical patterns of movement and their essentialness of preserving them. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so I would say a greater portion of my day is spent talking about the need to preserve because I know that the preservation is going to require more than a single person. I yeah. know that there's a, there's a community that's required to save something. And so like, let's say saving movement is the thing that yeah. I'm talking about right now, certain movement patterns. So I, I pay with my own experience like i i'm I'm giving Mm -hmm. up me doing the thing because i know that it will pay off if i can get collectively more people sort of doing it and promoting it and spreading it Mm -hmm. i would like the transition of where i can just do the thing i would like to experience that sort of aging out of going from going from a teacher in that way um to being more like i'm still doing it it's just that the and it's not going to be an immediate but where where i can um do the thing more than I teach the thing. I'm looking, okay. I'm looking forward to that phase. And then of course I go right, right too. And then explaining to everyone how you do that, you know, because I, I because I don't think, because, well, yeah, go ahead. Cause I, I did that four years ago. How's it working? Right. <laughs> Fantastic. It's really, really good. Right. I, I get to do as much swords as I want. Well, not in pandemic times. I can't travel as much as I'd like, but I am no longer having to, show up four nights a week and weekends teaching all the time. Yeah. Right. Um, and there are all, I mean, okay. We could talk for another hour about how, how you might want to go about that. So maybe we should schedule around two. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's okay. Think about, as I see it, retirement isn't stopping doing what you want to do. No. It is, it is stopping having to do the things that need to get done so that you're free to do the things that you want to do. Yeah. And I think what I mean even more by retirement is, um, you know, eldership isn't something Mm -hmm. that our culture does very well anymore. So I think more like what I'm interested in doing next is, is, is being an elder. And I mean, I think it's, I mean, I think it's far, farther away than maybe I'm making it seem, but, but this idea of, of, um, occupying a role of doing the sum total of my experience and, and educating more in, in, in informing, Mm -hmm. informing more by being a person that is, that is, um, I wrote a book called dynamic aging and I was, you know, 40 at the time, but I was able to work with, uh, 
two, four women who were all septa and octogenarians who had been training with me for 20 years. And so they're like, here's where I was when I was in my 60s. And these are the ailments that I had. And here's where I am now, where I'm in my 70s and 80s. And I'm better at 70 and 80. So I let them really tell their story. Because it's, it's one thing for a 35 or a 40-year-old to say, this is why we're doing this thing and it works. It's different to say, here are four people and they're sharing what they had and what yeah, they yeah. did and didn't need to do. I'm ready to occupy um, even a space of writing and informing that is more about holding that um, older person space who is still well and thriving and contributing, but not necessarily in the way of working, you know, like, uh, cause we're sort yeah. of like, you, like you have to work to be a good pillar of society and then you die That's as a, as a, right. It is as opposed to like your elders. It. Yeah. And elders have a role and you're still productive and informing. It's just not through a, but, um, commercial space so much anymore yeah we, we don't value our children for their productivity that's right and um, right. so basically what i did is is i shifted from being a historical swordsmanship instructor to being a consulting swordsman hmm. I, I took the idea from sherlock holmes and moriarty if okay. sherlock holmes could be a consulting detective i can be a consulting swordsman and so i am not directly responsible for any school or club yeah and that's uh, right? freeing probably a little bit too oh god such a relief yeah. But it means it means I'm free to, you know, I've written more books. Yeah, and exactly. Produced online courses and I have a much more active mailing list than I have because I'm actually interacting with the students because I have the time and the energy. I still yeah. want to interact with my students. I still want to, you know, take care of my people, but I don't want to have to I don't, I don't want that to be a kind of um formal like what's the word? I think it's a, I mean, I think it's a, it's system. a job. No, it's not. But I, I think it's also, there's a very particular mindset in creating, you know, you're creating something that didn't exist before. I mean, there was mm-hmm. ideas and there's a practice and then it went away yeah. for a while. Um, and then you're, you're, when you, when you're bringing something back like this, you're having to create a school, you're having to create manuals, sure. you're having to create uh, rules, you're having to create sort of like teaching student protocols like yep. that that is a one that is one way of informing and spreading but that is a very fatiguing way because yeah. it's using parts of you that aren't necessarily associated to the thing that you would like to preserve i am now ready to preserve the thing rather than building the infrastructure around preserving right. the thing because because i've i'm at my capacity like like right. and but i yeah, I, but, I mean Okay, Get, getting you onto the podcast, when I contacted your assistant and I got your fantastic, like the best hell yes I'll come on your show <laughs> I have ever had, people, there was a, Katie sent me a photograph of herself holding a sword and I thought, okay, this is going to go really well. <laughs> um, but the, you're obviously really, really busy because, you know, this was scheduled like six weeks ago through your assistant because you don't have the mental leisure to do it yourself no right <laughs> and that 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 doesn't strike me as like healthy in the long term no it's um i and i don't how do i want to say it i think that there are people suited for it and sure. i think i am a person suited for it um you know there's always there are have always been leaders 
mm-hmm. um, you know, who take on, everyone is busy taking on certain strengths and, um, and those strengths look different no matter what you're doing. I think I'm suited for what I'm doing. I just also, because I think I monitor my health so well, mm-hmm. because I have an assistant or yeah. two or yeah. three and, yeah. and don't, and don't, and, and I allow that work to sort of be shared um, yeah. because I'm very protective of my sleep. And because oh, I have, you know, like, because I'm very protective of my movement and my family's mm-hmm. time and their exposure to sort of my work uh, in terms of the, you know, how much work is being done. Like, I don't want it to encroach in their experience. Um, sure. I know that I am very close to being done at that level of, uh, it's yeah. not so much production. We are still productive and contributing. It's a, of a particular type right. that is very, um, it's just short lived. You can only do so much. And this is what I've done. And now I'm ready to shift to a different way of doing my work. Okay. But I mean, seriously, I've, I've made that shift and I use, I have assistants who are working for me to do all sorts of things. Um, so there's another Katie who'll be transcribing this, this show, who's also very excited to hear that you're coming on because she's a massive barefoot fan and she knows oh, nice. you already. Hi Katie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, just getting, I, I, I describe what, you know, me shifting to being a consulting consultant as retiring because it mm. was retiring, strictly speaking. It's a word but, that people understand. Yeah, but it's, it's really just a much freer mental space because you're not required for the day to day. No, you're, so yeah. I yeah. feel like I'm, I'm restoring more of the regular way of behaving in the world. Like, I don't think it's natural to have so many letters come to me, but to me not be able to send out as many back. You know, if we're in a relationship, you send me a letter, I send you a letter back. We're in, and, and, and I like teaching live because even if there's 200 people there, I'll see you all. I will meet you all over the course of a weekend or a week. That's much more normal than putting out videos and books where you have a hundred thousand people who've read them and you've never met anyone. I just think that that energetically is a, is a, it's, is a, it's, a, it's a weird. And I think that there's a draw in some way. And so I'm just looking to restore uh, the humanity to what I do. Meaning that from my perspective, it's more humane. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. That is a great answer to the question. And it was not at all what I was expecting. <laughs> you were saying, Oh, I have another book coming out and it's on this. No, 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 no. But actually, actually when I, when I sent these, these questions to your assistant, um, she actually replied saying, she really wants them to hear your answer to the last two questions. So I'll ask you the last question. I know, she's going to hate question. it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Okay. Somebody gives you a huge chunk of money to improve movement quality worldwide. How would you spend it? I would spend it by increasing the walking paths the world over, meaning mm-hmm. um, spaces where people could... Uh, actively transport in whatever way that was for them without having to worry about. And, and I would, I would prefer it if it was sort of like hard packed dirt, you know, like, yeah. that, like that there would be spaces where everyone could actively transport their body. Even if they wanted to go back to the way we used to move. I was, I um, was reading some on your website and some about um, some, some of your books and um, some of, you know, the, the, history you write about and the idea of walking to 
you know, or riding to where you are going to compete or move this idea of that. It's not unreasonable to want to go walk for 200 miles somewhere that, that that's a perfectly reasonable. And I would argue necessary thing to be able to do that, that I would spend it making sure that there was a, a way that could, a, a, like in the same way that we've connected a worldwide web, it would be an actual worldwide, you know, oceans restricted um, walking path, walking web, walking web. Um, wow. That's what I would do. Okay. That's an interesting use of the money. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's tricky to get people to walk because of the time that it takes. And, you know, I, I go for like a, like a six mile walk a couple of times a week at the moment because we live quite close to the edge of town and we can get out into the fields and wander around in the fields and it's lovely. Yeah. Um, but for an awful lot of people, they are like in the middle of a city or whatever. And some cities are great to walk in, but oh my God, America. All right. no. every, every European, I've, I've, I've walked in, in every European city I've ever been to. And most, you know, I can't think of one where it was actively difficult to walk from one place to another. But a little while ago, I was staying, I was doing this event in Michigan and we were staying in this hotel and I thought, I'll just go for a walk. And I could walk to, there was a restaurant next to the hotel and there was another kind of restauranty, shoppy kind of place next to that. So maybe 200 yards total. And then the, the pavement sidewalk ended and it was just like big roads with big cars on them moving very fast. And there was literally, you could not walk anywhere from the hotel. It was impossible to walk to it from anywhere else without, you know, climbing over fences and, you know, crossing major roads just by walking across them, which is suicidal. Um, but I, I was like, how am I supposed to get anywhere? And of course, car. I'm, I'm supposed to have a car. <laughs> yeah, you're in Michigan. Like, you're in Michigan. You have to get a car. You're in ground zero of right. car land. But I, but I was only there for a weekend. I, I want to buy a car. But I mean, it's just that. I mean, I, we, we are designing really the infrastructure of a culture to yeah. require a car. But more than that, to the sake of because movement is not possible. Uh, so walking movements are not possible. Active transport, right. meaning using your body to get from mm-hmm. point A to point B, not possible. So, yeah, that's where I'm going to put my money. Excellent. That's a, <laughs> well, well, that's an excellent answer. So thank you very much indeed for joining me today, Katie. It's been a delight talking to you. Oh, I really, really enjoyed it. That's I said an enthusiastic yes, because I just knew it would be great. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this rerun of my conversation with Katie Bowman. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks, as always, to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque Heart accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And join us next week when I'll be talking to Carrie Baker, who is a data scientist who writes uh, very learned sword articles for Sword STEM, doing things like analyzing the tournament data to create an engine that literally predicts double hits. It's a fascinating conversation. You don't want to miss it. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. 
And while you're there, if you do have an extra minute, please leave a review and rate the show. All that sort of thing really does help. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Thank you.